Church, let us turn in the scriptures and hear the words of our King as we continue our sermon series entitled The Way of the King, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Love it if you'd turn in your Bibles with me and pay attention to the words that are there. Uh, if you don't, didn't bring a Bible this morning, we do have some paperback Bibles that are near. You would love it if you would grab that together. Let's remember as we turn to Matthew chapter 5 that this is King Jesus. And he's preaching the good news of his kingdom. And the good news of his kingdom is the king himself and the way that he is laying out, purchasing, fulfilling, we'll see in our passage this morning, for his people to walk. Right? A new way, a transformed way. This way we will see this morning as we continue in this first chapter, this first, first section in the three-part sermon outline that is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus laying out the nature of the law. In other words, what do the law and the prophets Old Testament, have to do with the way of the king and his kingdom now that he has appeared. We're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17 through verse 20. Please follow along with me as we take a peek at this scripture together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, when we hear these words, we realize that they're serious. A, a statement that we would never enter this beautiful kingdom that you are describing, that we would never be under the just and merciful rule of this great king. And I pray that those last words we heard from you this morning would cause every one of us to sit on the edge of our seat and say, is there a way of entrance? Is there any way that I might enter? If the Pharisees and the scribes could not enter, what chance do I have, is there any good news to this good news of the kingdom? But I pray that you would open up our eyes, open up our minds, cause us to think well and rightly together. But Lord, I pray that your spirit in the middle of the application of our efforts to apply ourselves to this word, that your spirit would reply this word to us. We would be convicted of sin, that we would see rightly and clearly, that we would be transformed, that we would repent, and that we would believe in the greatness of your grace. Lord, we pray all of these things because we need you, the King and fulfilling Redeemer, to do it in our midst this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin in this passage, one of the, actually, it's the, really the first three words of this section. It says simply, do not think. This passage is a, a, a passage that's telling us of a way that we are to think and a way that we are not to think. As I look at this passage, one of the things that we can do very quickly and often especially with complicated passages like this that cause us to ask many, many questions, is we can pay attention to those questions. And that's good, right? One of the things I would encourage you to do is as you are following along, as we work our way through the passage, as you have questions, think, all right? Pay attention to them. 
and then write them down and then pay attention to what Jesus is actually saying. Because one of the things that can happen when we're paying attention to the words of Jesus, we can have a thought and a question that's sparked and we can cease to pay attention to what Jesus is actually saying because we've gone off on a tangent on something that Jesus said made us ask a question about. Okay, we're actually going to pay attention to some of those tangential questions this morning. But most importantly, let us hear what he's actually saying right there on this day, in this passage, in this context, okay? And then let us make the notes. And if there's a question that I leave unaddressed, bring it up in community group. Talk about it over lunch. Read the scriptures again. Pay attention to a commentary, whatever needs to be done to answer those questions. But this morning, let us think about what Jesus means when he says, do not think. He opens up this passage with an effort to correct a way of thinking. Specifically, he's correcting our thinking about why he's come into the world, what his business is here as he's explaining the gospel of his kingdom. What is the purpose of his Ministry. He first tells us what not to think, and then he tells us what we ought to think. Do not think, he tells us, do not think that he has come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think like that. We'll talk about this more detail in a moment, but essentially, don't think that his ministry is out to, 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 out of sync with all of the scriptures and what they have said leading up until his coming. It's not out of sync. I don't want to abolish the law, he says, but rather I want to fulfill the law. Now, you look at the passage again, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, good, I won't think that. What should I think? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in other words, don't think one way that I've come to abolish the law, but rather come to think that I have come to fulfill the law. Do think that when we look at Jesus and then we read the scriptures, we ought to see a continuity, all right, uh, uh, and a revelation. When we see Jesus, we should see a continuity with all of what the scriptures have said and a revelation of what they've been getting at. There's something in what the scriptures have said about the Messiah that we should see even more clearly when we look at Jesus, which is the scripture's fulfillment. There's something that we see in Jesus that fulfills or puts into being, literally incarnates what we see in the law that was true the whole time. There's a prophecy that is not only perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, but in its execution, we see that the prophecy, what that prophecy was truly revealing the whole time. In, in, in Jesus, we see the prophecy made real, brought to light, the mystery made known, right? Now, in our conversation uh, with the pastors of Cross Point this past week, as we were talking about this passage, uh, Miguel Medina pointed out that, the, that Jesus is really doing two things in this section of scriptures. And he's doing this before he launches into the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. Miguel Medina suggested that he clarifies the nature of his ministry and he cautions his disciples to take his teaching seriously. So we want to do those things this morning. We want to see what he's clarifying, what, what he's correcting about, what we might have thought had he not said this, and that we would take his caution seriously about entrance into the kingdom. We're going to consider those two things this morning. And be, we're going to consider those two things before we seriously consider how the gospel compels a believer how to walk in the way of the king and his kingdom. So let's begin this morning by looking at the clarification, what it is that he's clarifying for us. We've already looked at it a little bit in verses 17 and 18. Look at it again with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's just an interesting note that that's actually an odd way to say it. It's normally the law and the prophets, like, like the law and the prophets. Like really those, those words just mean one thing. But he says the law 
or the prophets, which says in some way he's talking about the law and he's talking about the prophets. Now taken together, they are a whole, but there is a way in which he has not come to abolish either. Do you see? What we call the Old Testament, the first 39 books of your Bible. So, you know, about that two thirds that it's right there at the beginning. Those were all written before the coming of the Messiah, before the coming of Jesus. And that those books are often referred to as the law and the prophets. This is Jesus's Bible. This is Jesus's sacred writings. It's the revelation of God. We see in both Jesus's words and in his deeds that he had a deep appreciation for those words. But it goes way deeper than that. Not only does he appreciate, yeah, I appreciate them. I see what they were doing. I'm going to do something different. But, you know, you can pay attention to the law if you want to. No, he has more than just a deep appreciation. He has an actual submission to the words of God as he finds them in the sacred writings, in the law and the prophets. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, some of you know that story and you're able to call it to mind, right? He's being tempted in the wilderness. Satan actually comes to Jesus, son of God and son of man, and begins to tempt him. He offers three temptations. He's under such intense pressure as as Satan is, is pressuring him to lay aside the purposes and ways of the Father as revealed in the Scriptures to pursue his own glory and kingdom by some other way than the way that was revealed in the Scriptures. Now remember, Jesus is the glory of God. He is right to pursue his glory. Jesus is the king of all of creation. He is right to establish his kingdom and draw people to himself, right? So really what Satan is tempting Jesus to do in some ways is what Jesus came to do. Except for Satan was tempting him to do it in a way that would be disjointed from the law and the prophets. What do you see Jesus do? He says this. He recognizes the threat that is, is, and essentially confesses that the way of the kingdom is the fulfillment of the righteous way of the scriptures themselves. He says there is no kingdom apart from the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is what Jesus is laying out in that wilderness temptation. Man does not live by bread alone, he says but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's going to pay attention to that. He's not only going to appreciate, he is going to submit his own self, the way of the kingdom, to the way that is revealed in the scriptures. Now, Jesus in our passage this morning offers this two ways and two contrasts. Look at the passage with me again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do you see the contrast? What are the words? Abolish and fulfill, right? So we ought to circle those. We ought to underline those. We ought to write those down. We ought to pay attention. What's the difference between abolishing and fulfilling? But he continues to give us another one. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away. It's like for a long, long time, right? He's kind of calling up biggest things that we know. Not an iota or a dot. Not even the smallest letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And here, the the contrast is between pass from and accomplish. So we have abolish and fulfill, and we have pass from and accomplish. It's a contrast, not simply between no law and yes law. It's a contrast between no law and fulfilled law, abolished law and fulfilled law, a contrast between no law and accomplished law, between law passing away and law being accomplished. Do you see that there is something more than just, do we have a law or do we not have a law? We have a law, and it's fulfilled, and it's accomplished. Now, what in the world does that mean is a question for us. Let's take a moment to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's using this word law. It's interesting in the passage that while he says that he doesn't come to abolish either the 
the law, or the prophets. He then goes on, really, almost exclusively to address the law and not the prophets. Of course, as he's doing that, he's actually fulfilling prophecy. But let's understand what he means by law. The law is God's revelation of his right ordering of the world. The law is God's revelation, so it's his, right? And we wouldn't have it unless like, he, he gave it to us. We wouldn't have it in its clarity, in its perfection, in its authority, at least if he had not revealed it, of his right ordering of the world, of creation. Nearly all of God's law has been given to us following the fall. That's important for us to note. That is, God made all of creation in perfection. And he did give us instructions about how to live in that perfection. You might remember Adam and Eve, his first creations, created in this perfect and bountiful and generous garden. And he gave them a way in which to live. He instructed that in that perfect world, they were to be fruitful and to multiply and to walk according to the parameters and instruction that he gave them in which they would flourish. They were to exercise his cultivative and his benevolent dominion in the world. The garden was to be the kingdom of God in all of its justice and mercy and bounty and generosity and flourishing. But very quickly, Adam and Eve, God's first human creations, rejected the way of God, and they chose to live according to their own rebellious ways. They essentially shook their fist at God and said, thanks for all the stuff, but on our own, we can live, which is essentially not thanks at all, right? It's a rejection of all that he had truly given to them. And so most of what is meant by the law of God, isn't just a right ordering of God's perfect world, right? It's a right ordering of the world to direct us how to live in a fallen world deeply affected by sin. That's why the law takes the shape that it does. It's showing us a rightly ordered world in a wrongly broken, sinful world. We can find much of the law in God's words to Moses, both in the Ten Commandments and the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, scattered throughout the first five books of the New Testament. We have that law, and then much of the reflection upon that law in the passages that remain. As we look at the law, we can see various commands and instructions, and these various commands and instructions, they address three spheres of human life. It's often observed that these three spheres are the spheres of the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Remember, we're looking at the one law of God, God's right ordering of the world. So it would be wrong to sort of compartmentalize these things and say that there's like three laws of God. It's not really the case, but rather... You can observe that these, this law of God, as you look at its various aspects, begin to address these three spheres, civil, ceremonial, and moral. If you look at the civil, or some people call it the judicial law, it deals with the instructions of God for how the Israelite people were to order their society and government. So when we think of civil law, we think of the right ordering of society particularly in its government. And when we think of the civil or judicial law, I think we ought to think of justice and mercy, something that we see meet in Jesus Christ as a, as a great sort of indicator of where this law is going to be going. But we see in this civil law, justice and mercy being played out by the laws of God as they were to be implemented among the people of God. Then we have the ceremonial law. This ceremonial law deals with how God's people and their priests were to order their worship, including their entire sacrificial system. So think of the temple. Think of the sacrifices. Think of the festivals. And in those things, we see the ceremonial law. And then we have the moral law. And the moral law deals with how God instructs his people, both how to love God and how to love their neighbors. Now you can see very quickly, there's a great deal of overlap of the moral law with the civil and the ceremonial law. I mean, how are you going to love others if there isn't a right-ordered society and someone to sort of 
to exercise authority in the midst of the society? How are you supposed to love God if you're so disconnected from him in your sin and there's no way to make atonement for that sin? So there's no sacrificial system. You see, these, these three spheres have a great deal of overlap in them, particularly the moral law. It was a right ordering of the world for a people who are made in God's image to discover what it looks like to live in the light of his glory. But in this fallen world, we quickly discover that there is no community, there's no people, there's no nation that walks according to the beauty and the the moral excellence of the law of God. Those people just don't wind up existing. And so God gives a judicial and a civil law. In the civil law, the people discover how to exercise both justice and mercy in a land filled with immorality. And I'm using that word immorality. I want you to think moral law, right? In a world filled with immorality, what do we need? We need a civil government to bring things back into justice and mercy, to correct the immorality that is rampant among the people. It just so happens that it's also rampant among those who serve in the civil government. So we have a problem, right? The civil law is essentially the means by which we deal with our immorality in relationship to one another. I think the civil law is by and large on the horizontal plane. In the civil law, we discover how we live with some semblance of peace, justice, mercy with one another. But we have no peace with our God. And so... It's in the ceremonial law that God gives the means by which we deal with our immorality in relationship to our God. And so the ceremonial law is essentially vertical. It's dealing with the moral law that we find ourselves declared immoral under. It's dealing with it before our God in the ceremonial law, in this sort of vertical relationship. Now, In our passage, we're told that the law is fulfilled. If you look at it with me, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to a not I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, not to see them pass away, but to see them accomplished, he says. And I think it's helpful to think through each of these three spheres of the law to think how is it that Jesus has fulfilled the law? While today we understand the morality of our religious life, we understand, and Jesus is explicit to teach, that there is a right way for the believer to live. We have little context for the civil and ceremonial law. So we're going to have to think really hard to think about how it is that Jesus fulfills that because we're not used to paying any attention to it. There's no properly religious nation. There's no legislator receiving direct revelation from God. There's there's no temple for us to go and make sacrifices. There's no priesthood that stands between us and God. How is it that Jesus does these things that appear to have passed away? But it says it doesn't. They don't pass away. But rather they are accomplished. So let's pay attention to that for a few moments. Let's consider the ceremonial law first. A.W. Pink, again, very helpful in this. A.W. Pink offers this in his commentary. The ceremonial law has not been destroyed by Christ, but the substance now fills the place of its shadows. Now, I don't want you to think just like metaphor here. I want you to imagine a shadow. I want you to imagine, and, and the shadow has the shape. In fact, it's something more like a silhouette. It has a particular shape. It's not just an amorphous sort of blob shadow. It's a shadow that's a silhouette so that it has a particular image to it. And then you have step onto the scene where you have, we have this white wall with a particular shape of a person and a shadow on it. And then in walks a person and they stand in the same way and you see that they fill up the whole of the shape. You see? It's not just some blob up there that anybody could have taken that place, but rather we have the shadow that is really actually the shadow foretelling the coming of Jesus. But when he steps up there, not only do we have the 3D image 
of the real. We have the real in living color, you see. When Jesus steps onto the scene, we have something better than what the law was. We have its very substance. There is no other thing that is going to step in to take Jesus's place. And it would be foolish to say, Jesus, get out of the way. I was really enjoying looking at that wall and the shape of it. He is the shape of it. And so much more. He steps in front, fills out the original with a greater array of beauty and excellence and perfection. Now, what I want to do is I want, I want to ask you to turn in your Bible somewhere. We're going to read a pretty lengthy section of Hebrews, all right? And I, I'm just telling you up front, you're going to get lost if you don't follow along with me. I didn't put it on the screen because then it'd go to the next slide and you'd be like, can you go back to that one real quick? I want you to have it in front of you, okay? We're going to go to Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter Nine. This is by far one of my favorite passages of Scripture because I think it describes the moment when the shadow was up there and then Jesus steps onto the scene and you're like, there it is. That's the real. It describes that atoning moment. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 19 onward. For when, Hebrews 9, 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he did something. Moses did something after the law was given. The shadow was outlined on the wall. Moses did something. And remember, we're talking about the ceremonial law particularly. Moses took the blood of calves and goats with water and Scarlet wool and hyssop, very detailed, very detailed shadow, and sprinkled both the book itself, that's the law, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you look at the silhouette up here that's on the wall, as it's got this outline in the shape that we discover to be Jesus, we see that there are details. And in the details, one of the details is, there is no way to be reconciled to our God by any ceremony of any kind, except for there be blood. And that blood is there because not only is the book that the law is written on unclean, not only is the tent they're supposed to gather in for worship unclean, not only are really these beings that are being sacrificed themselves not perfectly clean, but the people themselves are unclean. All of that is written and etched into the, what, what the silhouette, the shadow of the law gives us about what would ultimately be real. He says in verse 23, this was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now here he gives us a great indicator that the, the shadow that we've been looking at for thousands of years, it's a copy of something. It's just a shadow. It's not the real thing, he says here. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things, when the real thing steps in and, and when the real kingdom is instituted, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Here's the question. How do you prepare a temple where God is going to make his presence known? How do you prepare that temple for the presence of a fallen, sinful, rebellious people? How do you prepare it? Well, you sprinkle blood all over the place to sort of make an atonement, to demonstrate that where they should have died, there was a death that did take place in their place. How do you prepare a temple for the presence of sinners? You sprinkle blood everywhere, all right? Well, he's saying, how do you prepare the heavenly temple where God has taken up his residence for the entrance of sinners into that holy kingdom? Well, there's got to be something better than the blood of bulls and goats being offered. 24, for Christ has entered, 
not into holy places made with hands. He's not preparing a temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own? For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a huge key for us in understanding how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. Why it's not, uh, it's not that there is no law, but there is one. No, it's not just there isn't a law. Nope, there is one. It's there is a law and it's fulfilled. You see how that's different? It's different in this. There was a law and you had to, you had to bring sacrifices in the temple over and over and over and over again. What the fulfilled looks like is there is a greater heavenly kingdom into which all would desire to enter. But the only way of entrance is if Jesus would enter first and he does it. And it's done. You see, that's not just there was a law, there is a law, so he has to do it over and over for that place. There's an accomplished law. It still looks like someone offering sacrifice for himself in the place of others. It still looks like what was revealed in the law. But when it steps out, you're like, that's better because it worked. Once and for all, final. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly await his appearing. You see, he's taken his seat in the heavenly places because he's purchased a heavenly kingdom for people that he's speaking about in Matthew 5, and he's going to come and he's going to say, hey, people, the people that I said have entrance into my kingdom, come on in. It's fulfilled. It's been accomplished. Let's continue. Verse chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. That's a problem if we only had the law. If you skip on a little bit further in chapter 10, look at verse 14. For... In contrast to that law that had to be done over and over again and never really purified anything. For by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, that's where I sit. I don't sit in the place of sanctified. I have not yet achieved the righteousness even of the scribes and Pharisees. But he has perfectly purified and prepared a way for a sinner like me to enter into the kingdom of heaven during the course of this time in which I am being sanctified. That is Jesus fulfilling the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the ceremonial law, particularly through his work on the cross. I think that Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 are a... a description of what's going on in the heavenly places when Jesus is crucified. You see, everybody just saw a guy hanging on the cross and they breathed his last. And as a kid, I used to think, what's a big deal? Lots of people die on crosses. A friend of mine said, well, he was a perfect guy who died on a cross. I'm like, great. And then I read Hebrews. I'm like, oh, like there's this whole heavenly thing. I'm so worldly. When I look at the cross, all I see is a guy dying. But there's a whole heavenly kingdom that that guy dying was purifying and, and securing for a sinner like me to enter. Consecrating, I should say, not purifying, consecrating for a sinner like me to enter. And then he sprinkles me with his bloods. When I read the words, until all is accomplished over in Matthew chapter 5, and I invite you to turn back there with me. When I read, until all is accomplished, I think of the cross. And a lot of the songs that we sing together talk about when it was accomplished. And all of a sudden, the living color of Jesus stepping into the place of the silhouette appears before our eyes, and we sing louder, people, with great rejoicing that there has been a 
secured for us a genuine entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to go much quicker through the the civil law and the moral law. The civil law was purposed to maintain godly order for the people of God as a national entity. It served the people of God and the world to preserve the people as a society. And it's preserved them as a society so that they might shine a light in the land, surrounded by the nations, and so reveal the justice and mercy of their God. You see, in so many ways, the purpose of the law is to give us an image of the king and lawgiver. Okay? That's essential. And that nation of Israel was to put on display the beauty of his justice and his mercy. It's one of the tragedies that we see when we read the scriptures. I hope that sometimes when you read, you don't just go, oh man, they messed up again. What's wrong with these people? You weep. You weep because there was a testimony that was to be born in the life of this nation of justice and mercy, and it was not. And then we remember ourselves and we say there was a testimony that was supposed to be born among the people of God, and we don't. And we weep, and we find ourselves not in judgment on them, but identifying ourselves with them. And we say, we have a need for a Redeemer. The purpose of God, even though the people fail, the purposes of God are not thwarted. He still has a purpose for his people because he's good. He's gracious as the Messiah comes to dwell among them to reveal his gospel to him and through him to bring the light of this good news to the world. The light is going to shine out from the people of Israel and it does through the coming of the Messiah who brings the good news of the gospel and his kingdom to the apostles. And the apostles and the saints and the disciples go out from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria into the ends of the earth. And the world is filled with the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as he said, with the movement of the gospel out, we see that the people of God do not become a national people, but a people rather called out from among the nations, not to gather as a new national people, but to gather as a people who belong to God among the nations, to be a city on the hill in those variety of dark places. So Jesus fulfills the civil law, not by establishing a Christian nation. Take note. That would mean that there was a law, It didn't pass away, and now there is a law. And we get a Christian nation with that law. No. It's fulfilled. It's accomplished. It's better. Rather, he sends disciples into the world, having glimpsed the justice and mercy of the kingdom. We've seen it, and we're going to see a lot more of it as we look through the Sermon on the Mount. And we see the promises of complete fulfillment and accomplishment of that kingdom when our king returns. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Right? When was the last time you watched the news and you're, you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Instead, what is our response? Come, Lord Jesus. What if that was our public testimony? What if that was like, instead of a bunch of political speech filling up our Facebook wall, what if our, our word was, oh, come, Lord Jesus. I've seen, I've seen your justice and it's just not out here. And it's okay to say that thing right over there that was not just like the way of my king. It's okay to say that. But our response is not, put me in there and I'll be just. Our response is, come, Lord Jesus, come. In the meantime, we bear witness to the future fulfillment of the kingdom by pointing nations and kingdoms and our own selves in which these places and communities in which we find ourselves in the world, we point ourselves and our communities to the justice and mercy and the way of the kingdom of God. While we don't seek to institute a new religious civil law and so attempt to establish a sort of national religious kingdom on earth, we do hold up the wisdom of God's law so that it might take So there might be places for people to take refuge in the justice and mercy that's found in his way even as his way is sort of robbed and stolen from and put into civil law. So be it. The king's having an effect on the kingdoms of this world until he subdues them. No city or nation on earth is our eternal home. 
Neither is any legislature or government on this earth. It is God's kingdom for which we long, even as we long for the kingdoms of this world, to see and emulate the justice and mercy of our King. Jesus is the fulfillment for which we long and, it's, and, and, and for which we, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for Jesus, the fulfillment of the civil law. And then there's the moral law. A.W. Pink again, helpfully. So far was it from being his design to repudiate the holy law. He had become incarnate in order to work out that very righteousness it required. He became incarnate to work out righteousness to make good what the Levitical institutions had foreshadowed and to bring to pass the messianic predictions of Israel's seers. Let us remember that the law of God is for human flourishing. Let us also remember that Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh. In his incarnation, Jesus perfectly embodies and accomplishes the righteousness of the whole law of God. In Jesus, we see a literally perfect human being what it looks like when a human is actually fully aware and submitted to the law of God. I want to come back to the moral law in just a moment where we, when we consider the gospel and how it compels our faith-filled obedience. But I just want to very quickly, because we're just about out of time this morning, but I want to very quickly draw our attention to what I think is actually Jesus' main point in this whole thing. And that's his caution. A caution that's found near the end of our passage this morning. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There is a contrast that's being drawn here again. We had passing away and we had accomplishing. We had abolishing and fulfilling, and now we have relaxing and doing. There is a doing to be done. He's about to lay out for us what it looks like to walk in the way of the kingdom. He does not describe for us the means of our entrance, but he does describe for us the means of our disqualification. Okay, let's, let's use our, our logical minds for a moment. He describes for us our disqualification. The entrance he's already described. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But there is a severe caution. I've also often thought that the book of James seems like an extended reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. If that's not like a summary of what we just read, I don't know what it is, right? Just one point, one dot, one iota. James has already highlighted in the book of James the unity and integrity and wholeness of God, and here he points to the wholeness of his law. One can't separate the law into little units to be obeyed or to be ignored, like we'll pay attention to these ones and we'll call ourselves a righteous church, and we'll ignore these ones and hopefully he just won't pay attention to that. No, he's a whole God because he's a holy God, and it's a whole law because it is his righteous law. Our orientation to the law is not to the requirements themselves. Our orientation to the law, at, to the whole of the law, is as God reveals it, as a whole, not just little requirements to be met, but as a whole that is to be either kept or to be broken. It's real simple math. The law, it's a whole, the, because the law reveals a whole law giver. You're either like God or you're not like God. And when we look at the law, and we look at our disobedience to the law, we discover what? We're not like God. And in the, our services, we begin with songs that hold up the glory of God. And it doesn't take but a couple refrains, and we're like, David, stop singing that. I'm starting to notice something. You're holding up glory. I'm not like that. Can we pray? And Mark comes up, and he reads a psalm, and he says, yeah, let's do that. Let's pray. And we say, is there any good news? See, there's a caution for us. There is a God, and we are not him, nor are we like him. I think that our passage this morning is a call to the unity of the law. And as we look at it, we see that even the best among us, even those who tried 
the hardest, even those who paid attention the greatest and wrote down traditions by which they might make effort to keep that law, were keeping an external law. The scribes and the Pharisees themselves were unrighteous. What if the best and most religious among us don't even get to enter? That's the caution. Don't let our questions about what it means that Jesus fulfilled the law cause us not to read the whole passage and realize that we have a problem, right? So what does Jesus leave us with? He leaves us with being compelled by the gospel. Let me give you a little, just an honest little statement here. Jesus has not performed the full work of the gospel yet. He has not, he has not slidden into view yet over that silhouette. He is, the, the mystery has not yet been revealed. I would argue that in this passage, there's only two words that are gospel words in this passage. And it's the word accomplished and fulfilled. And really, much of the New Testament is an unpacking of what Jesus means by accomplished and fulfilled. But it's there. And the gospel compels our interaction with the righteous way of our God. Romans 10.4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, we know the law hasn't ended, so it can't just mean that Christ is the one who makes the law end. For Christ is the end of the law. Is, it's a loaded word. It doesn't say he puts an end to the law. It says that Christ is the end of the law. That is, he's the goal. He's the revelation. He's the fulfillment. He's the accomplishment. And his fulfillment procures righteousness to everyone who believes, it says. Romans 10.4. Righteousness is not according to works, it turns out. No matter how hard the Pharisees or the scribes or you and I might try. It's not because we have exceeded the works of the Pharisees. It's because Christ has exceeded our failed attempts at righteousness. It's because Christ has fulfilled and accomplished all righteousness for all who believe. One more passage from Romans. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You guys know what that's like. Anybody here see something beautiful about the love of God and say, I'm going to live like that this week? You know what it's like to be weakened by the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, force and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He did something so that righteousness might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to, us, to the spirit. I think it's a bit of a code word, according to faith. The spirit has united us to Christ so that he is our righteousness. The righteousness I never fulfilled in my own person, by my own works. So what the gospel does, it instead of being the means of our securing righteousness, the gospel and its grace becomes the means by which our obedience is compelled. It comes first. Because Jesus is righteous and has rescued us from the curse of the law, we have a new way to walk. Not as a people fearful and condemned, still trying to obey as if our obedience made any difference about the fact that we're already lawbreakers. See, that came first. We were lawbreakers. And then we become righteous. Not by any of our works, but because Jesus has stepped in, we walk according to the Spirit. Not trying to conform to external realities of the law, but transformed by an inner appreciation of the lawgiver who has saved us. That's why our obedience is not an obedience that creates righteousness. Our obedience is faith-filled obedience, an obedience that's compelled by Jesus and his gospel, the object of our faith. I want to read one last quote before we close. Christ came not to bring any new way of righteousness and salvation into the world, but to fulfill that indeed which was shadowed by the figure's of the law. He didn't come and say, yeah, God described the perfect way of righteousness by which you could be saved. That didn't work. I'm going to show you something really cool. He says, you see that? That's how you will be saved. And I will save you by it. He fulfills it by delivering men through grace from the curse of the law and moreover to teach the true use of obedience which the law appointed and to grave in our hearts the force of obedience. What does is, what is the Sermon on the Mount want? 
A people who have the, the force of gratitude and thanksgiving and appreciation of our king and his way so that we obey. In Jesus, we not only have the truly moral man, we also see the grace by which immoral man might avoid the curse of obedience and be reconciled to our God and with gratitude and thanksgiving, obey. In the coming weeks, Jesus is going to unpack and reveal the content of our hearts. Some of you have read ahead and you know what that looks like. When he says, you've heard it said of those of old, his purpose is not to set aside and abolish what was said. His purpose is to reveal the true righteous requirement of the law. And he's revealing a requirement that only he himself is able to fulfill. And then when we see it fulfilled in him, we find it beautiful compelling, and transforming. As we close, I hope that this morning that for those of you who have a faith in Christ, whose hope is in Christ's righteousness so that you repent of your sin, you say, I repent of it, I see it, I see what I've done wrong, but there's not like I'm going to walk right for a couple weeks so that I can be made righteous, that you've actually repented of your sin and placed your faith in the righteous one. I hope this morning that you find his way more beautiful. But I also hope this morning, for those of you who are still striving to make yourself righteous, to clean yourself up, perhaps you've even been engaging with the church just over the summer because you're going to get it right this time. Look at Christ and his warning. We don't get it right this time. We need one who would accomplish, one who would fulfill. And so the call for every one of us this morning, including you, is to repent and believe in the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your truth, your word, the whole of it. Pray that you would rescue your church from ignoring the whole counsel of the scriptures that when we read the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, we would see Christ on every page, literally on every page. We would see that we have had the mystery revealed and we would enjoy what we find, that we would become a people of celebration as a result. But I pray that you would also transform your church, show us your gospel, save the lost, work in our communities as justice and mercy is discovered, in our county even. And may you alone receive all of the glory as we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.